We are continuing in our One Word series. You know, we just have three months left of One Word. And that's really hard to believe. I know we've covered a lot of ground, but in many ways, at least to me, it seems like we just began. We are finishing up this morning a mini-series in our One Word series on God's Word. We've talked about prophecy and inspiration, truth and covenant, and our word for the day today and for the next week is gospel. But I want to tell you about next month's words. Next month, maybe turn me down just a little bit. I'm getting a lot of... <laughs> I feel like I'm in a stadium or something. All right. But not too much. Next month, we are focused on life's challenges. We're going to talk about worry, suffering, shame, guilt, and grief. So the things that we have to struggle with as humans, as inhabitants of this planet, life's challenges, these are going to be very practical lessons. And so next month, every Sunday morning next month would be a great time to invite family and friends to join us. If you know somebody who could use to to hear these lessons, who would be blessed by hearing about any of these topics, worry, suffering, shame, guilt, grief, Bring them along, and we're going to look at what the gospel has to say about each of these problems, these struggles that we deal with, how the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks uh, to these issues. And on the final Sunday morning of October, the 29th, Alex and I are going to jointly present the sermon on grief. And so you'll want to come and see how that goes. Uh, I don't know what you want to call that, a tag team sermon. We're both going to be up here together. And I hope that we won't get any grief for that. And I hope that when you leave, you won't be experiencing grief from having both preachers up here at the same time. So big month of Sundays, and I want to again remind you about our uh, unity service on October 22nd, that Sunday evening at 5. And also Trunk or Treat is Sunday evening the 29th. So two back-to-back big Sundays in a row. So I'm excited about uh, next month and all of the things that we have going on as a church family. But to our word for the day and for the week, gospel. What does gospel mean? What does this word entail? I bet that if I had a handheld microphone, and I spent the rest of our time coming down to you and going from person to person, and and I'm not going to do that, so don't get worried, and asking you, what does gospel mean? We might have as many answers as we do people in the house today. What is involved in this word gospel? A lot of different answers would be given if I were to ask that question. And I can think of a couple possible reasons for that. One reason might be that there's just a lot of ideas packed into this one word, gospel. It just involves a lot of ideas and It's a multifaceted word, and therefore, our answer would be multifaceted, and there would be a lot of different answers for that reason. But another possible reason why there might be so many answers to the question, what is the gospel, is that maybe we've lost touch with the basic meaning of the word. Now, that's not to say we don't use the word. We use a lot of words that we don't quite understand the meaning of them. I mean, we use the word gospel. We talk about how we preach the gospel, and I'm a gospel preacher, and 
That word even makes its way into some of our phraseology like, this is the gospel truth. But maybe, just maybe, we've lost touch with the very basic, with, with the core of what this word means. The word, as many of you know, means good news. And it's from the Greek word euangelion, from which we get words like evangelism and evangelist. I want to offer a little background this morning to help us understand why the early Christians chose this word. And really, it's not their choice alone. It's God's choice in telling his story and in preserving the scriptures that we have and in inspiring those scriptures in the first place. Several decades before Jesus' arrival, there was a great civil war in the Roman Empire. And just as a reminder, the empire, the Roman Empire, ruled over most every area that's featured in the New Testament, including where Jesus was born, the Jewish homeland east of the Mediterranean. The civil war, some of you history buffs will know a little bit about this, probably more than I do. The civil war resulted from the assassination of Julius Caesar. He was the ruler of Rome at that time. And in the wake of his death, two figures became rivals for ultimate power. There was Octavian, the adopted son and the heir of Caesar. And there was also Mark Antony, who was Caesar's personal friend. Their forces, they duked it out for more than a decade. But the crucial battle took place at sea on September the 2nd of 31 BC, so around 30 years or so before Jesus arrived on the scene. It was a naval battle. It was off the coast of western Greece. Here's the statue of Octavian. Octavian's navy won that day. They were the victors. And his defeated opponent, Antony, had to flee to Egypt with his girlfriend, Cleopatra, where they both committed suicide. And so after 13 years of a horrible civil war that affected most of the empire, there could finally be peace. And so when the heralds, when the messengers were sent throughout the empire to announce Octavian's victory, to share this news, the term that they would use in their announcement was the term euangelion that we translate commonly in our Bibles as gospel. The message went something like this, good news, Octavian Caesar has won the victory. He is now master of the whole Roman world. And so the word gospel became a regular slogan for announcing to the world that Octavian, who was known as Augustus by the time that Jesus was born, he was still emperor when when Jesus was born, that Octavian, this man, had brought peace, justice, and prosperity to the world. And so that is the context in which this word was used in the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus. And then a carpenter's son from Nazareth comes along, and he's from the easternmost part of the Roman Empire, from the far-flung eastern region of Galilee. He comes into Galilee, as is recorded in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, our text for the day. Mark says, now after John, that's John the Baptist, the forerunner, the trailblazer of Jesus, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. I think we've got this text up on the screen. Proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, not the good news of the empire, 
Not the good news that Octavian was now in charge and there could be peace and prosperity after there had been war and devastation. This is a different gospel. This is the gospel of God. And Jesus went around saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus used this word in a very different way. And so did his early followers, the early Christians, Paul and the rest in the New Testament. They took this word that meant one thing in the empire and they totally transformed it and subverted it and they made it mean something else. And that's what it means to us today. Isn't that extraordinary? What God did with this word, what Jesus and his followers did with this word. It no longer meant this was good news about the empire. It was the good news of God, the gospel of God. And that's what Jesus came on to the scene to declare. He said, repent, turn from your sins and believe in the good news, which I am now communicating to you. But what is that? What is the gospel? Back to our original question, the one with which we began the sermon. What is the gospel? Well, I want to take it in two parts. I want us to come to a deeper, better understanding of what the gospel is all about by talking about how the gospel is both news that is good. So it's a very complex sermon outline this morning. I like to keep it very complicated. News that's good. So let's start with the news part to begin. How is the gospel news? Well, in the first place, it's something that happened. The gospel of God is something that happened. And that might seem very simplistic to you. And like it should be common knowledge. But this is an important point with which to begin. The gospel at its very core is an event. I want you to think about, imagine this with me, that one of our members here had a young son with a fatal disease. And I want you to imagine that this disease, they had sought the cure, but there was none to be found, and it was killing him. And we suffered along with this family. We, we weeped with them in their weeping and in their sorrow. But I want you to imagine that when you walked in the church lobby this morning, the father of this young boy was standing out in the lobby telling each member that came in the door that a doctor has finally found the cure for his boy's illness. The family thought that this boy, we all thought, the whole congregation thought this young boy was going to die. But as a result of this new treatment that the doctor just revealed to this family, this boy's going to be cured and he's going to live. You see, something has happened. An event has occurred within the course of history, within the course of time that changes things. And likewise, the gospel is about a real event a historical event, something that actually happened in the course of time. And it centers on Jesus. He has come, bringing with him the kingdom. That's what he's getting at in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus has come. He's telling us about the gospel. The time is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. You need to repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is about something that happened. And that something centers on Jesus. But that's not all the story. It's not just that Jesus came. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Many years, well, not too many, maybe 20 or so, after Jesus left the earth, 
one of his followers named Paul began taking the gospel, the message of Jesus, to all the world. And he traveled to a city that was hundreds of miles away from Galilee, where Jesus began preaching, a city called Corinth, a city in modern-day Greece. And he went there, and he stayed an extended amount of time, and he helped to establish the church. And then he wrote a couple letters to this fledgling congregation. The first, we call 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to look in verse 1. Paul is reminding the young Christians there the message that he declared when he first came on the scene. Listen to what he says. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. The news, the good news that I shared with you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And at verse 3, Paul begins to get into what exactly the gospel is. What is the content that comprises the gospel? He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So what Paul is about to share with them and with us is of first importance for those of us who are Christians. I mean, it's top notch. It's at the top of things that are important in our lives and in our belief system. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the gospel is not just about the event where Jesus comes. The gospel event includes not just the coming of Jesus, but the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. It's something that happened. Christianity is not this new religious philosophy that has come on the scene. It's not just some way of thinking that somebody once proposed It is a historical event, and we've got to reckon with that. People the world over have to reckon with that. Either it happened or it didn't. And if it happened, either it means what the Bible says it means, or it doesn't. You can't go to the Scriptures and take piece by piece what you want to believe. You can't say, I like some teachings about the Christian faith, and I'd sort of of like to apply them to my life philosophy, to how I think. That's not the way that it works. It's an all-or-nothing deal. You can't take some and leave... The rest, uh, it is an all or nothing type proposal. And we've got to reckon with that. The gospel at its core is something that happened, an event. And let's go a little further. This news isn't something that has just appeared out of the blue. It's a new and unexpected development in what is a much longer story. You see, long before they found the cure, there was the devastating diagnosis. There were the days and nights in the hospital for this family that we talked about earlier. The endless appointments with doctors and specialists. The desperate search for the right treatment. The longing for a cure. And the news of the cure that finally comes is set within this longer story. And the great news of this cure that this family has received that will impact their lives and the life of their son only makes sense if you know the rest of the story. If you know what they've been through for the months and years preceding the cure. And the same is true with the gospel story. Jesus can only be understood in the context of a much bigger story. And we really got into talking about this last week when we talked about 
prophecy. But I want you to look with me in Luke chapter 24. Some of the last words that Jesus shared with his followers before he left the earth. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Let's pause right there. What's Jesus talking about when he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled? To the Jews, that comprised the entirety of the Old Testament. Those were their three major divisions. The law, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets included not only what we view as prophets today, but many of the the writings and the historical books. And the Psalms were all the books, not just the book of Psalms, but all the books of poetry. And so Jesus says, everything about the Old Covenant, everything about the Old Testament points to me. And I am the fulfillment of everything that came before. And so you can't understand Jesus unless you understand the story that happened before. He didn't just appear out of the blue, out of nowhere. He is the culmination. He's the fulfillment of so much that has gone before him. And he goes on. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus says, if you are to understand my ministry, if you are to understand the kingdom that I am bringing with me, if you are to understand the salvation that I offer, you have to understand the bigger story. So the gospel is a news event. It is a historical occurrence, but it happens within a much larger, longer story. And finally, as we think about the gospel as news, the news is about something that has happened in the course of history because of which everything will now be different. Because of Jesus, his coming, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the gospel event that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, nothing is now the same as it was before. Let's go back to this family with the young boy who suffered from the disease, but now there's a cure. To the, to the family with this sick child, there's the world before the cure and the world after. That's how they mark time. That's how they see the timeline here. Because of the cure, our child is going to get better. Before, there was devastation and frustration and despair. But now there's joy and hope because a cure has been found. And because our son can be healed. He can go on living. Life is transformed. Because of what has happened, everything will now be different. Thinking more broadly, there are a lot of events on a national level, that seem to change everything. I think about one that occurred, has occurred in my lifetime that we just commemorated a few days ago, September the 11th, 2001. A day which seemed to not only change our entire country, but the entire world. And there are many examples of how that's true, but one that comes immediately to my mind is flight travel. If you flew on a plane before September 11th and after, you know what I'm talking about. 
There was flight travel before that day, and there was flight travel after. I remember in the summer of 2000, boarding a plane in Chattanooga to fly to Arizona. We were going on a mission trip to the Navajo Indian Reservation out there. And our families and our friends came into the terminal with us, past the metal detectors. They were sitting out in the waiting area at the point at which you board the plane. Fast forward a couple years after September the 11th, 2001 and 2002, we took a high school trip up to Washington, D.C. A totally different experience. There are numerous ways in which this day changed everything. We can think about the Bush presidency. It became consumed with, and in many ways is now defined by the war against terror cells and terrorism. That day had great significance. That day made a huge impact. And you can think of other days on a national or international level that you've experienced in your life where this is true as well. But in terms of impact, any event that this world has ever seen, whether it's September the 11th, 2001, or September 2nd, 31 BC, when Octavian's army defeated Antony's, every single event pales in comparison, in terms of impact, to the gospel event, to the arrival of Jesus, to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And even the way that we mark time reflects that. There was time before Jesus, B.C., and there's time after Jesus, after His death. So this event, it occurred in history, it happens in, within a much longer story, and it changes everything. It changes things in a much more dramatic fashion than any other event that has occurred in the history of the world. The gospel of Jesus is news. It's news. It centers on an event that happened within a much longer story and it changed everything. But it's also news that is good. It's good news. And what makes it so good? Well, there are a lot of different places we could turn to in the scriptures that describe to us why the gospel, why this event, this story that centers on Jesus, why it is such good news. But I want us to look at just one verse, and it's Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul explains to us why the gospel is such good news. He first says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed or embarrassed by what I believe. Are you? We ought to hear him asking ourselves that question just as he posed it to the Roman church. I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed by the message of Jesus Christ, by the fact that Jesus, God in the flesh, came and lived and died and was raised. Are you ashamed? Are you embarrassed to believe that? To live like you believe it? To talk about it with your friends? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And here's why. Here's why. There's no reason to be embarrassed about it. There's no reason to be ashamed because it's the power of God for salvation to everybody who believes. First to the Jew, first to God's historic people from the Old Testament. It is open first to them, but then God's going to break open the walls, bust open the gates to his family, to his kingdom, and everybody who believes can be saved. That's what the gospel does. God's family is not just Israel anymore. It's everybody who believes in it, who has faith in it. That's why it's good news. Let's take this piece by piece. It is the power of God 
this news means and communicates to us that God has powerfully intervened in history. God has come down in the form of His Son, Jesus, and He's disrupted all time. He's affected everything that's, that's come before and everything that will come after. God Himself has powerfully interjected Himself into the course of human history, and nothing will ever be the same. The gospel is power. God has powerfully come into this world, and the message of the gospel can powerfully transform lives today. And it is for salvation. It is because, and what's implied in this verse is that we needed saving. The human race was lost, was headed towards death and destruction because of sin. And we needed somebody to swoop in and to rescue us and deliver us and save us. And that's why the gospel is also good news. It is the power of God unto salvation. God, and God speaking through Paul here, touches on our greatest need as humans, the need for salvation. And the gospel provides that. Our greatest need met with the story of Jesus, the message of the gospel. And it is to everybody who believes. Everybody who believes. Not just to the Jew, but also to us as Gentiles, as, as non-Jews. But it's to everybody who believes. So the gospel message forces us to make a choice. We can't just have some of it and, and leave the rest. We can't just take some of the teachings of Jesus and apply them to our general philosophy. No, it is an all or nothing proposition. It's take it or leave it. It's to everybody who believes will be saved. So we have, to, we have a choice to make. Either we're going to believe it or not. Either we're going to let it change our lives or not. Either it happened or it didn't. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice that we take. We're not Christians because we think the Bible offers us a few bits of wisdom and some aphorisms that might help us lead our lives better. No, we believe it because it's, it's news, because it happened and it changes everything. It is the power of God unto salvation for everybody who believes. Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? And I truly believe that the longer you sit with the good news of Jesus, the longer you abide with the good news of Christ, the better and better it becomes until it's the best news you've ever heard. I wonder if any older Christians in the house know what I'm talking about. If this is true for your experience, if the longer you have sat and thought about and reflected on and lived into the good news of Christ, if that news hasn't become better, and better. The longer you thought about your sinful condition and where you'd be without Jesus, the longer you thought about the generosity and the graciousness of God in sending His own Son and coming to earth in the flesh in order to die a humiliating death, you think about all that God did for you because He loves you. You don't know why He loves you, but, but you know that He does. He's proven it by sending His Son, Jesus. And the bountiful blessings that can be experienced through believing in the gospel, salvation and life and joy and fulfillment, and a future, and a hope. The longer you've sat with that news, the longer you've abided in it, the better and better it's become. And so the good news of, of your team winning a game, the good news of whoever happens to be elected to an office, uh, local or, or national or otherwise, 
the good news of, you know, you get to go on a great vacation next summer. All of that news just seems okay compared to the gospel news, to the good news of Jesus. That news, as I think about it, as I sit with it, it just gets better and better. And it's the best news that I've ever heard. I wonder if you believe that. You know, even though the gospel is good news, it's not going to sound like good news to everybody, is it? The message of Jesus is simply not going to sound like good news to every ear. Paul says as much in that letter, that letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians that we looked at earlier. In the first chapter, verse 23, he says, We preach Christ crucified, but it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's a folly to the Gentiles. It trips the Jews up because they think God, God would never come to earth. The Almighty God would never condescend to our level and come in human form. And He most certainly would not submit Himself to death on a cross. He would certainly not allow Himself to be humiliated by His human creation. It tripped up the Jews. Many of them couldn't quite get there. And to the Gentiles, to to those pagans who embraced a number of household deities that kept life going and, and protected you from calamity, they thought, I'm supposed to believe in just one God? I've got to throw out all these gods that have helped me and blessed my life so far. That is foolishness. I'd be a fool to do that. You know what would happen to my life if I tossed out all these gods? Man, I'd I'd live a terrible life. It was foolishness to them. But Paul says the gospel message, it's not going to fall on every ear as good news. But it will be heard as good news to some. I want to tell you a story that you will have the blessing to read this week in your devotional book. It's a story from Nick Fowler. He writes the devotionals this week, and he was once a member of this community, and he worked at the Al Hollow Church of Christ as the youth minister. But for several years, he and his wife and family were down in Brazil as missionaries and did a wonderful work there. Listen to this. There is no one that I know who embodies the gospel better than Miguel Montero Souza. When I met Miguel in February of 2013, he was quiet and meek, sitting on the back row of our outreach class in Belém, Brazil. At that time, Miguel was using cocaine every single weekend. When he couldn't get the drugs, he spent the nights in local bars drinking. Miguel's teenage son was living with relatives across the country in Rio de Janeiro. His younger son was living across town with his mother, who was hopping from one boyfriend's house to another. Miguel's life was a wreck. He was financially broke. His family was scattered and broken. His only solace was the next high. But something changed as he sat on that back row and soaked up the message of the gospel. The powerful words of Jesus in the scriptures penetrated his heart and broke down the barriers. Miguel was touched and moved, but he was not ready to believe. He had lived such a life that he did not think things could be any different. I wonder if in this crowd we have people who think that way. Because of the life you've lived, nothing can ever be different. We can understand why Miguel would think that. As he reflects on the wreckage that was his life. He didn't think anything could be different. But what Miguel didn't know was that we were different. As ambassadors of Christ, 
we continued to love and encourage Miguel. He started making changes. He allowed us to come to his home for Bible study. He came weekly to my home for a group Bible study. He began attending the Sunday morning church meetings. And in July of 2013, Miguel told me one Sunday morning that he would be baptized that afternoon. But Satan entered the scene and he took away his transportation that day. Miguel was late. I didn't think he was really coming. He had set out walking from the other side of the city and walked all the way to my house to be baptized. It took another seven to eight months for him to really get free of the substance abuse. Today, Miguel is my best friend and partner in the work of the gospel in Brazil. Both his kids live with him now and he studies the Bible with them every night. He baptized his oldest son last year. The obvious transformation has captured the attention of all his extended family and neighbors. Now Miguel lives each day with a smile because for him, the gospel was truly good news. And so the gospel may not sound like good news to everybody, but it will sound like good news to many folks. And the question is, will we be different? Like the church in Brazil, where Nick was ministering, was different. Will we be ambassadors of Christ? Will we continue to love and encourage people who are floundering in their sins? Will we continue to point them to the the best news of all, to the news that Jesus came and transformed the entire world? I wonder, is it truly good news to you, the gospel? And... Most people gathered here this morning would say, yeah, of course it is. I mean, why else would I be here on a Sunday morning when I could be outside playing golf or doing yard work or sleeping in? But I'm wondering, is it really good news to us? I mean, not just up here, but in here and in the way that we live our lives and in the way that we tell other people about the good news. I'm thinking about an old short story in which there's a character named Mrs. May. And Mrs. May is very prim and proper, and she is described as a good Christian woman with a large respect for religion, though she did not, of course, believe any of it was true. I'm afraid that we've got a lot of Mrs. Mays in our churches, sitting on our pews, maybe in the house today. Nice, polite, good Christian folks who come to church every Sunday and have a lot of respect for religion, but you don't really believe any of it's true. Not in a life-changing, transformative sort of way. Listen, it's up to us. We must each choose whether we will believe, really believe the good news and whether we will live in this new world that it opens up to us and whether we will let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel as Paul says in Philippians 1.27 and whether or not we will be unashamed heralds of it. I am not ashamed of the gospel as Paul said. Are you? Each of us, each of us must choose. And so this morning... We begin, we end rather, where we began with the call of Jesus as he came on the scene in Galilee preaching the gospel. He said, repent and believe in the gospel. This morning, if you are not a baptized believer, a child of God, the message of God to you is repent, 
Turn away from your old life and believe. Believe in the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. Or if you're struggling in any way and you need prayers and you need the support and encouragement of this church family, you can also come forward right now as we stand and sing.